welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Proper Mental Podcast. Thank you very much for joining me for episode 132 with Michelle Thomas, who is a writer and the author of My Shit Therapist and Other Mental Health Stories. And one day, Michelle started crying at work and couldn't stop. And she would end up spending the next two weeks in bed and would eventually have to leave her job. And as part of her recovery journey, she started medication and she started going to therapy. And she began looking at different parts of her life that had impacted on her mental health and contributed to her being unwell. And she wrote about this process and her experience with mental illness and bad therapists in her book. And in this episode, I chat to Michelle about her mental health and how a series of life events all arrived at once and caused her mental state to collapse. We also chat about medication and self-care and running and body image and how mental illness isn't always about the extremes, but much more often about managing somewhere in the middle. And I really enjoyed this conversation. It was so lovely to chat to Michelle. I reached out to her after I read her book, which was actually recommended to me by my sister. And I really enjoyed reading it. It's one of those books that had a really lovely mix of humour and sadness and insights kind of all rolled up and wrapped up into one. And it's a beautiful exploration of Michelle's mental health. But each chapter also has stories from other people that she collected from her online community. So there's loads of different perspectives and different ideas about stuff in there as well. And Michelle just has a wonderful insight about all this mental health stuff. She's able to articulate it really well. And something that she talks about quite a lot is the is the importance of including everybody in the mental health conversation, you know, and making sure everyone is represented and everyone feels seen. And I really love that about her work. And I really love talking to her about that as well. It was a really beautiful part of the conversation. Michelle's book is out now. You can get that wherever you get books from. And if you want to know more about her and all the different things that she writes about and all the different things that she does, you can go to her website. There's a link in the episode notes. There's also links to all her socials and all that sort of stuff. Same for me. Links to my socials, links to my website, all in the episode notes. And if you enjoy this episode and if you choose to listen to any other episodes, and you'd like to do me a solid and review them, drop us five stars on iTunes, drop us five stars on Spotify. It's really appreciated and it really makes a difference. And this is episode 132 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Michelle Thomas. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast and my guest this week is Michelle Thomas. How are you, Michelle? I'm good. Thanks, Sam. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you, mate. Yeah, I'm doing really, really good. Thank you for joining me this evening. I really, really appreciate it. Delighted to be here. Oh, mate. Um, I, I've listened to your podcast and I know that you like to ask your guests sometimes um, what the, the worst and best things a therapist has ever said to them. Mm. And if you have no objections to me, stealing your question and asking it to you I thought that'd be quite a nice place for us to to start oh nice okay um worst thing a therapist has ever said to me 
um, actually became the inspiration for my book, My Shit Therapist and Other Mental Health Stories. Um, it was 10 years ago. It's my 10-year it's my anniversary this wow. year. When I got really, I was really ill. Um, I burnt out, basically. I think there had been eight months of um, big life events, just one after the other with no kind of... Um, recovery period in between so my 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 dad had um my dad had a, a stroke which he reco- recovered from immediately but it was still like a big shock in the family um and then I worked in Edinburgh for a month which is a really intense period of work and then I was unemployed for a bit and then I moved house and I moved in with a partner and then I started a new job and it was all of these huge life things which one at a time you can handle right but they all happened within a space of about six months and um my body was telling me to like slow down and to take some time out um but I just kept ignoring it I just kept shoving it to one side for about three months and then I had the Christmas break and then I came back to work in January and then three days later I I went home and started crying and I stayed in bed for two weeks because I was just spent just completely deplete there was just nothing left um and I was really frightened and I you know went through the usual steps I contacted the NHS and I went to my GP and they recommended this uh, this counsellor and I sort of made my way to this counsellor and I'd never spoken to anyone about any sort of mental health stuff before and this was you know this was 2013 this is 10 years ago so this is just at the cusp of all the big mental health conversations that we're having now so this is before you know Riley Gordon and Ruby Wax and Matt Haig and all those big forerunners started really bringing the conversation to the for- to the forefront. Um, and I got to this this counsellor's place and um, I told her everything and it just all came out all about the depression and the panic attacks and how um, I didn't know what was going to happen and how I, I, I didn't see myself ever feeling well again and how frightening that was. And she let, you know, she let me just speak through it. And then she went, well, the next time you feel that way, just have a cup of tea and think about something else. Because, you know, there are people who are far worse off than you. Wow. 20 quid that cost me. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough one, huh? When you're kind of, that when, was... you, when you're on your knees and yeah. you're just, you're, you're, just just all you want is a lifeline yeah and, and just yeah, like yeah. literally anything literally anything would it's okay not to be okay would have been better than that literally anything um so that was that was the beginning of my sort of mental health journey and I I went through a couple of counsellors and I saw a couple of therapists what's the best thing a therapist ever said to me actually that's a really tough that's quite a tough one um I might need to circle back to that. I might need to like just ruminate on it and then let it come back. Yeah. I'm sure we- there is something, there must be something. There definitely is really helpful mental health stuff. Yeah. That therapists and non-therapists have said to me, I'm sorry, my cat's very attention seeking. She's, uh, <laughs> she's getting in on it. No worries um, but there must be, yeah, there will be something. It just needs to percolate for a minute, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. And weirdly enough, that's how therapy works, right? Like, yeah. so quite often I come out of a session myself and I think, like, oh, well, didn't really, I don't really feel like I got anything from that. Or, yeah. you know, I feel a bit flat about the whole thing. And then three days later, I'm doing the washing up and daydreaming. And then it's just have this like 
oh moment, what? you know, and something like filters through and you think, oh, I now understand that tiny I little piece of myself. Now. Yeah, mm. it's, um, there's a really great, um, it's kind of a mini graphic novel. It's, if you say meme, it sounds, it sounds a bit reductive. But it's a, it's a drawing by this artist who I will find and then like we, we can quote them and we can credit them. But she describes and she draws how therapy is like uh, it mixes up the sediments from your body. So it's like this, you know, you've got all of this crap, you know, by your knees and down to your feet. And then therapy just mixes it all up and loosens it up. And that's why you feel weird and wonky for a few days. And then eventually it settles and then the therapy mixes it up again and it settles again and it mixes it up and it settles again. And it's this this constant um, churning and going through stuff that you've, you know, that happened years and years and years ago and stuff that you didn't even realise you were carrying and stuff you didn't realise that you really thought. I think a really interesting thing, not a specific thing that a therapist has said to me, but I think a really useful thing in therapy is you saying something to your therapist and them saying the exact same thing back to you and you hearing it. And that's that can be really startling, I think, because I didn't realise how unkind I could be to myself. I didn't realise some of the things I was saying about myself until I heard them back and I was quite shocked by it. Because, and you know, if anyone said anything like that, to my friends or or to someone I love I'd be having words um so that's a really interesting thing I think therapy in in its simplest purest form I think therapy can just alert you to your behaviors and your thought patterns and knowing about them can give you the power to change them it's not a magic bullet it's not a fix-all and I didn't walk out of that session going, oh, my God, I'm cured. I'm never going to say horrible things about myself again. But it's just it just having the knowledge, just seeing that reflected back to you is an awesomely powerful thing. It really is. Yeah. And you can't change anything until you know something needs to change. Right. Mm, exactly. So I, that would be my answer to that question. The best thing would be a therapist pointing out to me like, you know, how some a, a guy I worked with for a long time. He said to me, um, you know, how would you feel if you heard someone else saying those things to you? And I, you know, I said, I wouldn't like it at all. And he said, why are you saying them to yourself? And I'd never thought about it. And, you know, you see that on Instagram so many times and it's just like, oh, yawn, another crappy thing. Someone, it's such a throwaway cliche, isn't it? Mm. But it's a cliche for a reason. And, um, but it takes a lot of work, doesn't it? To change that inner voice, you know, to learn to be more kind, right? Yeah. To kind of notice I can notice now when um when I'm feeling anxious and like noticing when you're feeling anxious and noticing when you're feeling a bit low is 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 a a step better than not noticing those things but it's not the same as actually taking action to to change that or to work against it um you know a parallel example is you know with exercise I've been I've been exercising pretty consistently for the last year and a bit I'd say um but I haven't done any for a couple of weeks and this morning um my boyfriend and I did did yoga with Adrian on YouTube and it was just a 15 minute exercises for your back and nothing nothing fancy just like a bit of cat cow 
and a bit of forward rolling and stretching. And at the end of the session, we both looked at each other and went, why are we not doing that every day? It's 15 minutes and it's really easy and it felt so good and we both feel so much better for it. It's um, forming the habit and it's forming a habit, I think. Positive self-talk, excuse me, positive self-talk is a habit, I think, that, that you need to work on and you need to build like anything else. I find morning pages really helpful for that. I don't know if that's something you do. No, no. What's what's that, mate? So I um so there's a book called The Artist's Way, which I wang on about constantly. And it's a 12-week um kind of it's a 12-week workshop program where it that helps you kind of it's a personal development thing and it helps you identify the things that you want to do in life and it helps you in a very practical way to take steps towards doing that and you know there's a bit of it that's a bit you know higher power and manifestation and and take a step and the universe will come with you which some people are into I'm not particularly but I think you can take what resonates and leave what doesn't as as with a lot of things um and the two really basic steps that you start in week one and continue for the whole 12 weeks is every day you write three morning pages, three pages of stream of consciousness, and you write some affirmations. And the other thing is um, artist date. So every week you kind of take yourself off and and do something to fill the well, fill the creative well and, and get yourself kind of connect with your connect with yourself and do something that you actually want to spend time doing. That's kind of slipped back to the by side a little bit for me. But the morning pages I've stuck with. So every morning I write um, just three pages of stream of consciousness. And at the end of it, I write affirmations or I write things that I'm grateful for or I write things that I want to manifest. And just forming the habit of doing that every day has definitely helped, I think. Yeah, it sounds really um well it sounds a lot of fun, but it sounds really sort of like pos- like a positive step, like a you know, almost like a, a healing step. Get this stuff out of your head and get it on a page. Yeah. It, it's much more likely to make it make it real. And yeah, we have to work on these things. I, I've been trying really hard myself the way I talk to myself. And I'm I've got a I feel like I've got a decent handle on it. And something oh. happened the other day. I was having a stressy day and, and something went wrong. And I just turned on myself, just momentarily said a horrible thing about myself. And at, at the same time, it was it was shocking, but it was also very familiar. And it, mm. I kind of realized, oh, I could fall back into that, you know, like, because oh, essentially you caught uh, yourself and you kind of saw it. Yeah. And it, it felt like very, very familiar. You know, it was like, oh, yeah, I definitely could go back to doing that if I'm not careful, you know, but this idea of kind of like writing these positive things out and like just to keep working on it because. Yeah. You know, I, I've spent X amount of time being nice to myself, but I was horrible for a lot longer, right? And we've got to get the mm. ratio the other way around, I think, ultimately, yeah. is what it comes down to. Eh? Yeah. One um, inter- one kind of interesting thing that I uh, picked up at a, a session or a thing I went to a few years ago um, was this person, and he was saying, if you're, if you're talking to yourself and you're being really punitive, if you're going, oh, you what are you doing what are you doing you've eaten all the biscuits now you're looking for more biscuits what's wrong with you if you if you instead of using that punitive and and punishing voice if you turn it into more like a oh 
Oh, did you eat all the biscuits? Are you looking for more biscuits? And if you, if you, you know, coddle yourself a little bit, um, even if it feels a bit silly, and it's supposed to feel silly because the alternative to it feeling silly is it, to, it feeling horrible. Um, that's a really helpful thing. And that's really helped me um, in particular with, um, you know, during the pandemic, I, um, I lived alone at the time and I was just eating constantly. And instead of going, oh, idiot, what are you doing? You're making too many cakes and you're eating all the cakes. What's wrong with you? It, I, was, I was very deliberately, very kind to myself. Um, I'm giving myself as much space and as much time as I needed because during that time, like during that whole time, we were just li- we were just stuck in an anxiety cul-de-sac, weren't we? You, like you just couldn't move. And I just thought, I, I can't make this worse for myself. So there's two things I'm going to do. I'm going to stop. I'm going to not drink at all because I'm living alone and I can't deal with all, all of this and a hangover. And that's actually stuck. I've been sober for just over three years now, three and a half years. Oh, wow. And the other thing is, I'm just going to just use this, oh, oh, you silly sausage, and talk to myself that way and be really, really compassionate and loving to myself. Yeah, it's a such... Again, it takes practice. It does, and it's such a nice way to live, isn't it? You know, mm. and God, as humans, we're so hard on ourselves, right? Like, if you can't eat a few extra cakes in a global pandemic, when can you eat a few extra cakes? Exactly. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. like, you know, like any any cake related issues, we'll just sort them out when the world They'll goes back just, to normal. Thank you very it's much. It's fine. It's just yeah. like it's not doom. It's it's just a bit of cake. It's fine. Um, yeah. There's there was. I, I, wor- I worry about stuff about detoxing really annoys me because you can't you can't detox your body unless you've got like lead poisoning or something you know that's what your liver's for and um it's you know your, your body isn't toxic you know you're not Dr Manhattan you've just eaten a bit of cake and that's fine just just chill out just de-catastrophize the cake yeah, that's it. Yeah. I yeah. actually like my main job, I kind of work in um, like rehab and anatomy and in, in that sort of space. And, really? you know, yeah, I always say to people, like if, if your body needs to get rid of anything, you've got this thing called the liver, which is designed by Mother Nature to get rid of anything that might need to be got rid of. No juice, no cleanse, no nothing is going to do a better <laughs> job than your liver, your lungs and your skin. That's it. That's what but, they're for. Right? But what about these 70 pounds a month supplements, Tom? <laughs> Yeah, that I just so happen to have a discount code if you're interested. Yeah, yeah, those ones. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, well, it's just yeah, it's a madness, right? It's, that's a whole episode in itself, uh, Michelle. I think. Yeah. Um, you mentioned before when you started to get poorly, and something that really stood out when you were talking, and also really stood out um, when I was reading your book, is the kind of um, you you did allude to it then actually, but the the sort of everydayness of things mm. that all added up, and I think that's such an important conversation when we talk about our mental health, because we talk it, we use words like trauma, you know, which mm. sometimes need to be used. Of course they do, but yeah. sometimes they don't. Sometimes it's loads of ordinary stuff that like you said, all happens at once. Yeah. And, um, it's amazing, isn't it? How initially, how resilient we can be when life starts stacking up and we mm. just kind of do stuff. Was that your kind of, uh, you know, were you aware that things were building up or were you just cracking on with life? 
No, because I was I was just cracking on and I was because everything was happening so quickly. And, you know, and, I, and I've always been someone who I've always prided myself on being like a, a very productive person and and, you know, by performance at work um, all through school, all through uni, being the person who gets results, being the person who um, is reliable and unflappable and you can just parachute me into any situation anywhere in the country and I will take control of it and I will get things moving the way they should be moving. Um, I was working um, uh, as a as a comedy producer. So working through Edinburgh, I was, you know, uh, managing, you know, a few different shows, making sure everything was going OK there. Um, and before then, I'd worked for an opera company where I was a tour kind of touring stage manager. So I'd go to Glasgow or wherever and make sure that everything was where it's supposed to be. Everyone was where they were supposed to be. Everything was working as it should be. Um, and and I I kind of worked and worked my way up this comedy company. I'd started as a flyerer and then kind of worked my way up to like producer. And then there was there was an opening at the company for a full time role. And I was like, yes, this is what I want. This is what I've always wanted. And I got a job as an agent. And I was I was managing acts, and you know I was working for a company that manages you know some of the biggest names in UK comedy. And I had famous people's phone numbers in my phone. And I was like, this is brilliant. This is what I've always wanted. Turns out I hated it. It was awful. There was no money. I was expected to work ridiculous hours. And it just wasn't for me. I was, there was a guest, there was a, an act who was warming up for Have I Got News For You for the Christmas special. Um, and like Daniel Radcliffe was hosting and there were like loads of famous, beautiful people. And I was backstage at the BBC and there's a buffet you know this is this is before the before the you know cost of living crisis obviously um but I was just like just looking at my watch just thinking I want to go home and that's when I realized like other people would think that was a perk other people would think that was really cool um but I didn't and it just wasn't I was trying to kind of bend myself into the into the shape of someone who would excel at this role and I was trying so hard to I, I really wanted that pat on the shoulder like you did good kid um and it was it was hurting me and it was making me ill um and it took a long time for me to realize that and I just kept thinking I'm just tired I'm just tired it's just catching up with me I just need the weekend I just need a weekend in bed and then it was oh, I just need the Christmas holidays I just need a couple of weeks and then when I came back to work it was just it was over immediately I just couldn't do it um but yeah I do I I, I think a lot about how and in particular I think the conversation about mental health has moved on since then but um it was all about binaries back then. You were either well or you were ill. And all of the kind of stories about mental health were, I tried to kill myself, but now I run ultra marathons. And it was it was either or. Um, and while that's, you know, that's that's valid, that is what some people experience. But a lot of the time you're just managing in the middle. And you don't have to wait. And I'm sure this is something that resonates with the with the rehab work that you do as well, is you don't have to wait for rock bottom. You don't have to wait for a crisis. 
Um, and it was, you know, there are parallels as well with, with drinking. You know, I wasn't an alcoholic. I wasn't, I was never alcohol dependent. It never affected my work. Um, but I did drink more than I felt comfortable with. Um, you know, I didn't need to go to rehab. And I didn't need to do the 12 steps, but I did need to make a change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think it is better now. I think we could talk more about how, yeah, mental health, it's the little things. It's the it's the little things that chip, chip away on mm-hmm. your mental health, I think. Yeah. And often because some of the things that we do that maybe aren't serving us very well are so normalized. So normalized. That everyone else is doing it. So you think like, you know, I used to think about myself like I should be able to do this because look at all these people around me. They look can all, all do this and I can't. Doing it. Yeah. Then you turn it on yourself, right? Yeah. But it's yeah, not you. What's wrong with me? Why can't I do it? Yeah, it's not you. Yeah. It's the thing that you're trying to do just isn't isn't right. I um worked for a job recently that I didn't get, but it was writing for a company um that works with therapists and one of the things that they did was they arranged a wellness retreat a mental health wellness retreat in Ibiza but all of the all of the promo all of the promotional stuff was you know lying next to a pool with what a big glass of cool refreshing depressant um and and we just the the way that um, the impact of alcohol in particular, the impact that that has on mental health is just completely casually ignored. We just completely throw a blanket over it. Um, and I think that's a conversation that we need to have, definitely. Yeah, I completely agree. Completely agree. And like for myself, I'm sober as well, right? I don't drink. Mm. And um, I did for a long time and I drank a lot. I was very good at drinking. It suited me very well. Mm. I had no idea that I wasn't well until I stopped. You know, I had no idea because it was uh, just this normal thing that everyone did. Yeah, everyone did. So for me, it was a coping mechanism. You mm. know, for me, it was uh, it was a way to hide myself and to do all these things I needed to do. And yeah, but people don't realize. So we're like self-medicating with this uh, with this stuff. And it just takes the edge off enough so that people maybe don't realize that there's other things going on, right? Yeah. Another thing that um, I realized as well um, when I when I stopped drinking was I was never a smoker, but I would smoke if I was out. I'd fancy a cigarette but what I actually really wanted when I was out was an excuse to go away to go to the to the smokers corner to the smoking area and just have a bit of shush just have a bit of shush for a minute and then go back in and join the crowd and be with be with people and be present and it it, that was a massive revelation when I thought I I didn't really want to have a cigarette I mean I'm sure I did I'm sure I thought they were delicious at some point but what I really wanted was the opportunity to leave that situation and come back I think that would be I think it'd be great if we could have like a bubble wrap area for for people who just need a bit of I just need to go and recharge my social battery for a minute yeah, would that be really cool? Like a 
and then come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like in those old school um, record shops where you could go in a booth and put a, a record on and the headphones and be, yes. you see them in the old movies, don't you? Um, yeah. yeah, you could just like just nip it and just nip in there and, you know, sit in yeah. silence or um, yeah. play your favorite album or something for 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. That, that would great. be sick. Yeah, it'd be really good. Um, I, what was the, how did you start to get better from that, Michelle? Because a lot of, uh, one of my favorite sayings and anyone who listens every week will be rolling their eyes. Cause I probably say it every week, but you can't heal in the same environment that made you sick. Right. Mm. So when it comes to the lifestyle factors of our mental health, quite often we get poorly and then we feel a bit better. And then we go back to doing all the stuff that made us poorly and get trapped there for a little bit. Yeah. Um, so how did you start to like bring things in to, you know, to start to feel better and to start to get better? I had to quit my job um, with no plan and with no resources. Like it was, it was just after Christmas and um, I'd had a Christmas bonus but I was just like, I can't come back. I'm really sorry. And um, I was, I, I lived with someone at the time and he, like, he helped me out with, with, I could pay less rent for a couple of months. Um, and I just like went underground, like, uh, I think in the book, I talk a bit about like the, the levels, you know, the, the, the warning size of mental health. And at what point there's like, you know, a yellow alert and an amber alert where the yellow alert is, you know, you make some small changes that you can. Amber alert is, you know, you tell people that you need to reduce your workload or you tell people that you need a bit more time off. And red alert is like all bets are off. All events are cancelled. No obligations will be met. I'm going to bed and I'm staying there. And that's what I had to do. Um, and I was really lucky. I had friends who phoned me. I had people who got in touch with me and just listened to me crying on the phone. My mum rang me. My mum and dad rang me every day and talked to me for an hour on the phone. Um, I couldn't really talk back. But um, my mum would just ring and she'd go, well, you know, there are these birds outside and your dad's painted the garage doors, a lovely shade of aubergine. And... Uh, and and she'd just like describe what was happening in her world and what was going on in her day and it just it was it let me know that there were things going on outside my bed and it also just it was just she was just holding my hand through the phone and letting me know that I was loved and that that I mattered and that she was connected to me and I was connected to her and um I wrote about that in the book and one of the most beautiful pieces of feedback that I got was from um, a father and son, a father and his 13 year old, excuse me, child. Um, uh, yeah, uh, they, they, they're they exploring their gender at the moment. So I'm just going to say a father and their 13 year old child. Um, and the child would be having panic attacks and they'd listen to the book. They'd listen to the audio book on a loop. And when the child had panic attacks, they'd say to their dad, just talk to me like the mummy from the book. Wow. That's beautiful. Isn't it? Isn't it just? That's like really if, lovely. Yeah. Like, it, you know, that's it now. Like if you've, yeah. if you wanted one thing from writing that book, that that's it right yeah. there. Yeah. That's, yeah, um, it was that's lovely. wonderful. Yeah. Oh mate, that's really nice. It's gorgeous, mm. isn't it? Mm. And did you, um, was like one of the first steps uh, medication for you because I, I know you tried a few different mm. things with that Michelle to kind of to help you along 
Yeah, for me, um, definitely like going on medication and staying, I'm still on the same medication, um, citalopram, 20 megs. Um, and like the first few weeks were horrible. Like the side effects were so grim. Um, I was exhausted. A really weird one was um, kind of my sense of spatial awareness. Like I'd bump into door frames all the time because I couldn't quite judge where the door frame was. And at the time um, I was a waitress and a barmaid and I'd always overfill the pints or I had to really concentrate when I was putting the plate down or the pint down to make sure that I got it on the table because my sense of space was a bit all over the place, which is really weird. Um, but yeah, it just, it took a long time. The effects of medication, it's really, really subtle. And it was about six months before I was still working in the cafe at the time. And um, I was supposed to start work at six in the morning. I got a phone call from my boss at quarter past saying, where are you? I'd overslept. And I like, luckily I lived like, pretty much next door to the cafe so I was just able to jump out of bed put on some clothes like run across get everything sorted get like the cafe up and running and open by half six as usual so it had no impact on like the day really and I did the whole shift and I finished the shift at you know 12 or two o'clock and then when I finished the shift I realized I hadn't thought about that morning since like I'd, I'd messed up, I'd made this huge mistake of oversleeping by 10 minutes. And normally I would have berated and berated and berated and berated myself going, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with you? You need this job. You're going to lose your job. Your manager thinks you're unprofessional. But instead, because of the medication, I think, I, it, it was just like, oh, this thing's happened. It's fun. Move on. And I didn't think about it again. And it floored that that realization properly floored me. Yeah, that's yeah. huge. Yeah, when oh. you when you think about it, you know, it's like I don't know. I I always expected when I was trying to get better, I always kind of expected this this moment, you know, this big moment. And if it was a film, there'd be like dramatic yeah. music, and everyone would be crying, and I'd be like, I'm fixed. But it's much more like, like exactly like you just said, you realize stuff after the fact. You go like, yeah. oh, hang on a minute. I just did that. And it's maybe something thing. that would have been not just not happening maybe mm. a week or two before. It kind of, uh, it's, it sneaks up on you, doesn't it? Feeling a bit, yeah. feeling a bit better. Yeah. yeah. It's really interesting that. It's great. Yeah. yeah. It's like a lovely little surprise for yourself as well. When you go, oh, I can do this. I can do a thing. Yeah. I, I found for me medication, like, before I started taking it, I was doing all the things and the things weren't working. And that kind of just brought it all together. I felt like once I started on, uh, sertraline was what I took. I'm not mm. taking it now, but I, I did for some time. Um, and I, yeah, I just felt it allowed me to kind of like suddenly all the stuff, you know, people always say like exercise. And I was like, I'm living in the gym and I still fucking hate myself. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it was, the, it became a stick, a stick to beat myself with that the yeah. stuff didn't work. Um, but then once I was on medication, it was like, oh, oh, I love being in the gym. I feel great. This must yeah. be what everyone's talking about. You know, it allows stuff to work. Um, but yeah, it was that, know. yeah, yeah. Was it was that kind of um, similar experience? You know, for yourself, did that kind of does that resonate a little bit? Yeah, I was doing um, like yourself. I was doing the stuff. Um, 
I remember going for just a really teary, resentful run on a grey January just because I was just like, oh, God, please, just something. Like, I was so desperate. Um, I'd do anything, including exercise. Um, but, yeah, I just needed... Um, I, I just needed some I just needed some help um with with the with my anxiety in particular um and I found medication just it it just gave me like a, a stronger and firmer foundation to work from um and yeah and, and, and then you and then you can do all the stuff then and, and the thing is um you know if I could have taken a year off work and had really rigorous therapy every day and you know changed my circumstances in every imaginable way if I could have you know lived somewhere sunny and got some vitamin d therapy and and done all of this stuff would I have needed the medication maybe maybe not but I don't have those resources and medication is a resource that I do have so I'm going to use it yeah, that's a great way to look at it, isn't it? Mm. Because, you know, like we talked about the everydayness, this stuff that creeps up and affects our mental health. Well, mm. yeah, we don't have those luxuries, do we, as normal everyday people? We just can't mm. take that time off and and all those things. Yeah. 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 You you wrote a lot in the book as well, uh, Michelle, about um, running, as you mentioned, and that, that seemed to kind of help at times as well. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. 100%. Um you know, feeling, I, I think anything that, that's a skill that you develop that make, I mean, aside from, you know, the endorphins and, and the physical stuff, which we all know is a thing. Um, just like developing a skill and being able to do stuff that you weren't able to do before um, is a, a really um, motivating, it, it is, a, is a brilliant and joyous thing. And I think noticing you know, uh, uh, noticing how you feel in your body and noticing that it feels good, noticing what your body can do rather than what your body looks like was a big key thing for me and still is. Um, I've been doing yoga for about uh, really consistently for like just over a year now. And it's the littlest things like I wasn't able to, the pose, it's a, I don't even know what the pose is called, but basically you just bring your knees up to your chest and put your arms around them. And I wasn't able to do it. And now I can do it quite easily. And you suddenly go, oh, that's a thing that I can do. Or the first thing, the first time you're in downward facing dog and all of a sudden your heels touch the floor. I'm like, oh, oh, that's a, that's a thing. And, you know, I'm not going to be able to pick up a car anytime soon or do a headstand. But noticing the progress that, that comes with consistent practice and consistent effort that's a source of pride because you can look back and go this is because I can do this because I've done all of this um and that's that's a really valuable thing to to know I think and to experience because you can believe you can hear it and you can believe it but until you experience it and know it that's when you know that's when it resonates more deeply I think yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's something about showing up for yourself, you know, doing the thing that you said you were going to do and getting a bit better at it. And I always think like like running's a good one because it kind of there's often when you first start and like, you know, 
I, I remember the first time I went for a run on the couch to 5k and I like I checked in case it was broken because I'm sure I must have a walk due and I'd been going for like 20 seconds I thought yeah. I was gonna die yeah the f- like you run for 60 seconds eight times with a two minute break 90 second two minute break in between the first time I did it I I thought I was gonna die honestly it was horrible I remember that that feeling well but you know and you never think you're going to be able to do 5k and then you can so maybe you try if you want to and you go a little bit further but then you can start to apply that to other stuff right you know so whether it's a job that comes up and the normal use not being very nice to yourself would say well there's no point I'll never get that I'll be rubbish at Mm. it you say well I said that about running 5k and now I can do that Mm -hmm. so maybe I can get that job and it's just like it's a subtle shift isn't it in how you um how you view the world yeah and how you view yourself and your capabilities as well and your place in it yeah Mm. definitely and I loved what you said then as well about like focusing on what your body can do and you know I wanted to kind of chat to you something I wanted to ask you about actually is um is like body image and Mm. how and that aspect of mental health because again I don't think that's really something that's talked about and it ties in with having a negative opinion about ourselves and stuff we talked about already about how hard we are on ourselves right I love that my Instagram feed now can be, well, is because I choose it, I curate it, is full of like diverse, gorgeous, fat, thin, old, differently abled bodies. Um, I really read, I'm so, so jealous of the generation that gets to grow up with Lizzo. I am so jealous of that. I think that would have completely altered the trajectory of of my life and of my body image if I'd had a similar role model. Um, I remember being 12 when Titanic came out and people were body shaming Kate Winslet, who was who is just a classically conventionally gorgeous woman um, and I think was a size 10 and 21 and people were going, mm, should she be wearing that dress though? Should she? I remember, I remember Jennifer Aniston, Jennifer bloody Aniston, having to do an interview saying, I'm not fat, I'm just Greek. And Greek women have big asses and big boobs. Jennifer Aniston, who was a size like six. So I think, yeah, I I I am really excited about what what the next generation what gen z is gonna is gonna do to annihilate body shaming and body negativity and what we're gonna what they're gonna do to um promote not just body positivity even but just body acceptance just acceptance like this is what my body looks like and it doesn't have to be and it's it's beautiful because it's mine but it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks of it. Um, It's very, very average, but it's also very, very magical because it allows me, it's the vessel that allows me to experience everything that the world has to offer. Um, That really excites me. Yeah, very much. It sounds like a lovely, a lovely place to to live, right? It does, doesn't it? And they can do it. They, They can, the young ones, the kids are all right, Tom. They're getting it. They're doing it. No, that's it. Yeah. That's it. I always think like kind of um, 
I mean, I'm not sure how old you are, Michelle. I don't want to um, insult you by lumping you in in the same age as me. But um, I kind of, I don't know, I, I'm part of the, like an elder millennial, right? So I'm learning mm. on the job. I'm somewhere in the middle, you know? I kind of, you know, I was a teenager in the 90s. So, you know, that I'm kind of almost societally programmed one way. And yeah. then having to spend the last X amount of years learning that that's absolute rubbish. And, mm. you know, you know, and, um, and then there's, you know, maybe older generations who ain't willing to learn and cross that gap. And then there's, like you say, there's the the next generation that are kind of blazing the way forward. And um, yeah, it's lovely. It's lovely to see. I think it's lovely. And a really lovely thing that I found, I haven't done many races as a runner, but I've done a couple of 10 Ks and I did a half marathon and the body diversity from from those runners is is genuinely magical and it and, and that's what you don't see if you only see a particular if you only have a particular view of what an athlete is what a runner is that can be very very narrow and very very restricting but once you're out and people and, and around people who are doing it and and often you know running circles around everyone else lit like lizzo for example she can she like runs about on stage she does a marathon every night running about on stage while singing while bungee jumping and on fire her body is so so capable and she can do so many amazing things with it and it's a body and hers is a body that historically has been maligned and has been marginalized um because of her race as well as due to her due to the size of her body and I I think just having someone like that absolutely rightly idolized is a is a fantastic step forward and I love I love her I love her music I had a dream about her last night actually really yeah yeah she was just just my mate and it was great (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she'd be a good mate to have right she'd be a good yeah. uh good mate to have yeah that whole you know you can't you can't be it unless you can see it that type mm. of thing right so yeah yeah more of more of that definitely I always think the whole like body image thing is is really interesting to me because it's as a as a man it's different right so that's much more recent that it's been a thing for men so for women mm women have been body shamed like since the dawn of time but for for men i don't know 2005 like it's quite a new thing right um where do you think it coincided with skinny jeans maybe yeah <laughs> maybe yeah and having to get in them eat darker <laughs> tea yeah damn you razor lights <laughs> yeah that's it yeah yeah no i've never i've never thought about blaming them before but yeah them See? and crack they're the two <laughs> Two main main issues with men and, and body naughty, image. naughty crack. Yeah. But no, it's um it's interesting stuff. And it's like again, it just feeds that narrative, isn't it, of how we see ourselves and mm. that, you know, and and that pressure that we put under ourselves to be something that we aren't or don't need to be. Mm. Um and yeah, it all adds up, doesn't it? It all adds yeah. up over, over time. Yeah. So these a lot of these things we're talking about, you know, like medication and um exercise are part of like the self-care toolkit and mm. you know that's that's a funny one isn't it self-care because it's another one that's kind of been grabbed by the wellness industry and and mm. now is a way to sell us those detoxes we were talking about before which... detoxes <laughs> candles seaweed leggings <laughs> these are all things that i've i've seen campaigns for that had a that had a psychotherapist or or a psychologist 
say you know drawing the comparisons between this particular bit of algae and what it can do for your brain um and it's it's a it's a scam of course it is of course they're gonna you know we live in a in a in a capitalist hellscape everything's gonna be commodified everything is gonna be um assimilated and you know and then spat back out at a markup and mental health is no different um I think the the difference is, I think the key thing is, oh, this is a bit spicy. I don't know if I want to say this, actually. No, I'm not sure what point I want to make. Sorry, I think... No, no, not at all. Not at all. There's something... It's not quite formulating for me. And like the minute we get off, I'll go, ah, it's this. I've got this <laughs> perfect little sound bite. That was it. Um... um it's an it's a really interesting one, and the self care industry is is um, is like aggressively and almost exclusively marketed at young women, which leaves which first of all you know you know you've got the the, the capitalist you know they're targeting they're they're targeting them for their money, but also where are the resources for boys and men? How do we make men feel good about themselves in a way that isn't drinking and smoking what um, what can we do what are we doing to make men feel good yeah and to make not, men feel good about themselves not skinny jeans that's for sure not skinny jeans or maybe skinny jeans who knows but i do think um i need to look into more resources actually for promoting male mental health i love the work that calm of calm have done some really beautiful work um they're last photo campaign last year it wasn't specifically aimed at men but it was a uh it was an exhibition on London South Bank and it was the last photo taken of people who had died by suicide and most of them were smiling most of them looked really normal and really lovely and really full of life and really joyful um and it was a, a really profoundly impactful campaign. Um, yeah, I really, I really like the work. I really rate them. I really like the work that they do. Yeah, very much so. I love the idea of any sort of campaign like that that's going to take something as like as stigmatized as suicide mm. and and where they did it, right? So let put it in people's faces. You know, like none of this, like talking about, because often mental health is discussed really clinically and it's all about talking about in the doctor's office and in the therapy space. And it's all like separate to normal life. And it's like, oh, no, let's just whack it in the middle of the road in London and let's all mm. have a look at it. Right. That's like, it, mm. it, it, it's much more, um, a much more impactful way to, to do it, I think. Mm. Yeah. But there's a, a, just a couple more things I want to ask you about, Michelle. And I know we've sure. got a, um, we're conscious of the plumber coming, right? So we don't want to, uh, don't want the Mate. boiler to blow while we're. Don't, uh, don't joke about that. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah there was a, a line in your book and i've written it down right so i'm gonna put you on the spot i'm gonna throw it mm -hmm. on your toes but um whenever i speak to creative people i always try and ask them this question and i i i haven't quite found the words to say what i mean so i always get different answers so i, mm -hmm. I have yet but there's a line in your book that kind of summed it up for me but you there's a um and i'm gonna sort of mess it up a little bit here but you said that there's a bit of your brain that makes you creative and funny and smart and imaginative and it's the same bit that sometimes hurts you 
And that leapt off the page to me as someone I consider myself a creative person. And sometimes I think I have to feel the way I feel to be able to do some of the things I do, like a double-edged sword, almost a, a mm. gift and a curse type of scenario. Mm. But th- does, you know, do you do you still kind of feel like that? Is that kind of, uh, you know, does that still make sense to you? Yes and no. I do think it's the it's the... I do think it's the same bit of your brain that um, makes you, I, I definitely think, hmm, hang on, sorry. I mean, I really, I'm, now I, I, I'm really pleased with that question. Now I'm thinking, oh, I'm taking a bit of a book that you wrote no, years ago. No, no, and no, I've no, just no. dropped let's, it into your lap. Let's have a thing. <laughs> yeah. Can you read it to me again, please? Yeah, so you said that the bit of your brain that makes you creative and funny and smart and imaginative is the same bit that sometimes hurts you. And mm-hmm. then you put um, that you haven't learned how to wrangle that yet yeah um i do think that that's true um i think it's it uh, oh hang on sorry i'm looking because there's a bit there's something i've written about this um no i think that might be bollocks Tom. i think i might have written a bit of bollocks though <laughs> but maybe not i think the thing the thing is it's not um uh i don't think that depression and mental illness is the price you have to pay to be creative. I don't think those two become go hand in hand. I know plenty of really, really boring people who have depression. Um, I know people who, who wouldn't consider themselves to be particularly creative um, who have depression. Um, I don't think, and I think for a long time, you know, we've we've got this 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 um uh the cliche of the tortured artist. Um I think it's and Hannah Gatsby um you know touched on it in her show Nanette when the guy was like when someone came up to her and was like, Oh, if Van Gogh had been medicated, we wouldn't have the sunflowers. But no, the the short version is depression is not mental illness is not the price we pay um for being creative and funny mental illness isn't it's not it's not a bargaining chip you know it's mm-hmm. it's a separate thing and we absolutely can do all of the things that we want to do and all of the things we need to do without being ill and i think i i, I think of it in the same way as but there's a quote from the artist Wade that says something like, your compassionate self wants the same results as your productive self. So if if we're thinking we can't, we can't get, you know, I can't take any steps to, I want to be productive. I want to be productive. I want to do all of these things. And if I take it easy on myself, I'm not going to be able to do that. And that's not true. Your compassionate self wants those same things, but it also doesn't want you to die. That's the big difference. I do think it's, I think it's fair to say that you can have depression and you can have anxiety and be creative and funny and imaginative and and kind and compassionate and curious and all of those things. Um, I don't, I don't think, I don't think you have to suffer. I don't think you have to suffer for your art. I think there's enough suffering. Yeah. I think there's enough suffering that doesn't produce any art. I don't well, think you have to suffer for your art. 
No, that's true. Eh? There's plenty of suffering with without art. But yeah, mm. I love that. That was a, a wonderful answer for a uh, for a tricky question. But um, yeah, no, that's great. Um, what are you up to these days, mate? What have you got anything? Uh, are you working on anything we need to know about? Stay tuned. Stay tuned. Watch this. Stay space, tuned. Huh? Stay tuned to Ms. M. Thomas on Instagram. I think. Yeah, I'll um, put. I'll put all the links and everything in the yeah. uh, in the episode notes. And, and my shit know. therapist and other mental health stories is available at all your favourite places. Indeed, and it's really I really enjoyed it, mate. It's a great Thank book. You so much. And um, there was a mate. lot. Um, yeah, lots as with all mental health stories, right? There's bits, and I was like, yeah, that's a bit of me. And then there was other bits where I was like, that's not a bit of me. Isn't that fascinating? Or now I know yeah. that about someone else. And um, both those things are really important when we talk about yeah. mental health, eh? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. So there's one, there's a bit in the in the book where because you know, you're you, I was writing a book about um about my mental health experience and going in, you you I just know I'm I'm a white person, I'm a white woman, I'm straight, I'm perceived as being middle class, I'm I'm you know, I'm doing all right for myself. And I don't want I don't want this to be another account of 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 you know a definitive account of what mental health issues are because it's not so I knew I wanted to include other people's stories in that and I also knew that while I wanted to be as honest and as raw and as as, as open as possible I had to tread lightly because um these aren't sorry I had to tread lightly because I am still in a position of enormous privilege and I don't want to frame myself as, you know, the voice of, of poor mental health because my experience is, as terrible as it was, is so much better than other people's. Um, so I was really mindful of that. And even so, I got a message from someone said, like really gently, really lovingly, calling me out for something that I'd written in the book so I was talking about um going for an assessment for some counseling and you would it's like a box ticking thing have you thought about hurting yourself no have you thought about suicide no have you thought about harming anyone else have you thought about harming your loved one I said no and I wrote about how disgusted that made me feel and how upset that made me feel just the thought of the thought of harming my loved one and the thought of being perceived as someone who might harm my loved one was really abhorrent to me. And this person, Laura, reached out to me and said, I'm really glad that you've never experienced that. But when I had postpartum depression, I was convinced that the only solution was to kill my child and then kill my husband and then kill myself. And it took me two years to voice those thoughts to a therapist. So for you to write about how awful it is and how, and for you to write about how that's the worst thing a person can be was really triggering for me. And she wrote me this beautiful, compassionate, kind, open-hearted email when she could have and you know could quite rightly have written a blog or gone on Facebook or gone on Twitter and gone this woman doesn't know what the fuck she's talking about because of x y and z and I I responded back to her 
And we had a lovely conversation and she ended up telling me her story, which was then printed as an epilogue in the paperback and in the it's also in the ebook now. Um, but it was just a uh, it was a really it was just like a top notch example of how to how to how to how to have your behavior called out really lovingly to go hey you said this thing it made me feel this I want you to I want to talk about x y and z and just having that opportunity to to give her voice a platform as well um was was one of the best that was again another brilliant outcome from the book yeah that's beautiful that's such a nourishing experience you know Mm. you know, I always say like, we can only change the world from a place of compassion and the, like the fact that she yeah. could bring that to your attention in a really like beautiful way so that you yeah. were able to then respond in a beautiful way. And I hope like really nourishing and healing for her as well, because the absolute worst outcome would have been for her to read those words that I'd written and gone, this has just confirmed the worst things I have ever thought about myself and to internalize that. But in fact, because of the work that she's done, because she is so resilient and so robust, because she's done the work, she was able to reach out to me and go, like, take this in the spirit that it's meant. Um, And it was it was it was, a, I hope, a really lovely experience for us both. Yeah, a, a saying I pinched from a, a, a guest from a, a few episodes back was um, don't call people out, call people in. And I really, really like that, you know, because we can, you know, we can't know everything. And, you know, a bit of ignorance is fine if you're willing to acknowledge yeah. you're ignorant and change it, right? We can't know everything. Yeah. But that fear of getting it wrong stops important conversations happening, right? Mm. And the, like the people involved in those, uh, if we do it right, it's a beautiful, beautiful, like learning experience for everyone, right? And mm. that's, that's how we change the world. Michelle, um, I've enjoyed tonight immensely. Thank you me so too. much for joining Thank me. I so really much, appreciate mate. it. No, mate, yeah, awesome. no worries. Cool. Keep in yeah. touch. Big up to the proper mental podcast. The proper mental podcast.